Welcome, listeners, to the BHL Podcast Series. I'm your host, Scott Heidner, and I am extremely excited today to be recording with Dr. Brian Smith in Detroit, Michigan, at the Tuskegee Airmen Museum. Dr. Smith, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Scott. Absolutely. I've been very, very excited as we have visited along the way in planning this world war ii history generally is a is a real passion area of mine as i know it is yours and this story specifically uh is something we're so excited to try and help share to a broad audience and tell uh such an important part of history and thank you for not only being a part of that but uh for making time to share it with us oh you're welcome i'm excited to share yeah well let's start with you um we've got a, a full disclosure to listeners we could probably spend days let alone hours and not really reach the bottom of all that this story has to tell but let's start with you uh dr smith so you have been here in detroit for a long time but you grew up in Alabama and really came by a very natural interest of everything aviation and rocketry related, I know, at a young age, which probably helped lead you here. Uh, but tell us your story and your journey that, that ended up bringing you here. Sure. I was born in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, ended up in Alabama by the age of five, uh, which was in the shadow of the Apollo program. So I was familiar with uh, rockets at a very early age. My father told me his story of his uh, travails in World War II. He was a, a medic, was captured by the Germans, and before he went to uh, the front to fight, he, his unit guarded the air base of the Tuskegee Airmen. That was a unit he actually could have gone to had he not been a conscientious objector. He didn't believe in killing. And he ended up being a medic. The Tuskegee Airmen fascinated him because he wanted to fly airplanes. But as a conscientious objector, you can't do that because you have to actually drop bombs and shoot bullets at people. That also awakened in me my first love of aviation. Now I had two. I had rocketry and airplanes. At the age of about 14... I had a, a girlfriend that lived across town. By the time I rode my bicycle over there, I got all sweaty. It wasn't a good visit. <laughs> so I needed a mode of transportation that didn't require so much work. And in Alabama, at 14, you could drive a motorcycle. So I endeavored to get one. I bought one for 20 bucks. I fixed it because it didn't work. And that awakened the engineering side of me. And all of my instructors, neighbors, uh, encouraged me to be an engineer. Prior to that, I wanted to be a brain surgeon. So I dropped uh, medicine and went to engineering. And because of my uh, stubbornness, I stuck with engineering all the way till about my third year in college. When I was sitting in a class, the um, instructor was a visiting professor who talked about the vibrations in the human body. He described his lab. I asked, can I come work in your lab? And he said, sure. <coughs> I was, uh, I believe, the first African-American to do so at Wayne State University. 
ended up being the first African-American to get a PhD in biomedical engineering from Wayne State University, who actually started biomedical engineering in 1939. So that's how I got to Detroit. I got into engineering. I later mixed engineering and medicine together. And all the coursework re required allowed me to then teach at Wayne County Community College math, science, um, biology, chemistry. My favorite subject is physics. And that has a lot to do with uh, model rocketry. All of what you still do today in terms of being an adjunct professor and teaching those courses? That's correct. Yeah. And so with all of that background, which certainly explains, uh, you know, the knowledge, understanding, and involvement in the aviation side, but more specifically, how did that lead, uh, in addition to your father's interaction with the Tuskegee Airmen as someone that guarded the bases down there, how did your affiliation with the Airmen come about? I was wanting to fly airplanes couldn't afford it so the next best thing is remote control as a student you don't have money to buy that either so you go window shopping i was in a hobby store just looking at the models and the radio control units and i heard this um what, what i called elderly at the time gentleman talking with the salesman about a four-blade propeller for his airplane and I looked over and I saw it was a P-51 Mustang. So I got closer and I said, why do you want a four blade propeller? And he says, I have a P-51 Mustang at home I want to build or I'm building. I said, well, why do you have a P-51 Mustang? And he looked at me like I was, you know, one butting in his business and, <laughs> and crazy. He says, well, I flew one. In World War II, and I said, you're with the 332nd. And I got all excited because this is the first airman I met after hearing my father tell me the story of them. And you bumped into him entirely just serendipity in the shop because you shop. overheard him. And he saw my excitement. He invited me to his home. I had to hear his story. I wanted him to sit me down like my father did and tell me from the day he got his draft card to the day he got out. Well, he, he didn't go in that detail, but he did tell me he was captured by the Germans after being shot down, spent nine and a half months in prison camp, ended up being the same prison camp complex that my father was in. But because my dad was a, a private and this gentleman was an officer, they never met. They kept the officers and enlisted men separate. I was able to introduce them years later, but this airman's name is Alexander Jefferson. So after meeting him, <coughs> he told me about the other airmen in Detroit. I wanted to hear their stories, too. Now, after all, when my dad told me his story, I went to the library and I read every book. I knew all the battles of World War II in the Pacific and the European theater. And talking to the airmen, I would ask them about these battles. They didn't, they didn't know them because they were fighting in their specific part of the war not worried about what was going on around, uh, you know, the different theaters. But that made them have an affinity for me. Here's this guy that has all this interest in our history. And I would visit airmen's homes and listen to their stories. Finally, they said, we've got to put you to work. And I failed at selling books. 
I'm just not a salesman. <laughs> the next job they gave me was um, finding scholarship recipients, you know, high school students uh, leaving the 12th grade, going to college. My first year, I failed at that. Richard Macon, who was also in prison camp with Alexander Jefferson, sat me down. He fussed up one side, down the other, and said, do you really want to be a part of us? And, and I said, yes. And from that day forward, I put forth the effort. And the next year, I had four scholarship recipients. I went from there to designing youth programs. And what we have here today is um, largely due to my, my efforts. That's so, and we haven't even gotten into listeners. We, in just a minute here, we're going to start talking about the Tuskegee Airmen themselves and then also the museum here and all the programs that go along with it. But I don't think I realized till just this moment, Dr. Smith, that it really all started with your relationship with one of the airmen who you met through serendipity at a shop one day. That's, that's unbelievable. It is. Now, I grew up around a bunch of, I would say, historic African-Americans. And they taught me how to respect my elders. So I had that all... I guess, I had that maturity. And I was able to go and sit at their homes and listen to their stories. I was able to hang out with them, whereas folks my age weren't doing that. And I thank my parents and my, my, uh, my village for helping me achieve yeah, that. That's amazing. Well, let's, you know, up to this point, we've been talking about the Tuskegee Airmen almost under the assumption that listeners will be familiar with who they are and what that story is, but I'm not sure that's entirely warranted. I, I'd mentioned to you in prior conversations, when I got this podcast scheduled, I mentioned it to a couple of colleagues who are very much fans of history, and I would have absolutely assumed were familiar with the Tuskegee Airmen, and they weren't. It just shocked me. So with that, Let's take some time and talk about that story, um, sure. how the Tuskegee Airmen came about, their struggles, their <coughs> accomplishments, the legacy that leaves behind. So this started uh, in, in not too far ahead of World War II, 1939, I believe, when Congress passed an appropriations bill uh, providing funding for African-American pilots, which was a first. Right. And after that, in 1941, this is still before the war, officially, although the world certainly seemed to know it was coming. Uh, originally, the 99th Pursuit Squadron, that was the, the first moniker, is formed. Um, and in June 1941, they transferred to Tuskegee, if I've got my chronology right. That's correct, but we should back up a little bit. Uh -huh. Let's talk about the mid-30s, uh -huh. when Germany was you know, doing its thing. The um, government in the United States realized, we got to go to war, and we don't have enough pilots. So they started what, what is called the Civilian Pilot Training Program and put it at the major universities. There were none at historically black colleges and universities. So that started the effort to get the Tuskegee Airmen going. It was protests by the NAACP, the black press, and not only for the um, Flying Corps, but for all the military. The 1925 War College study said that African Americans were only good for 
cooking, cleaning, uh, driving trucks, loading, unloading uh, ships, vehicles. They were afraid of combat, didn't have the coordination or the intelligence to handle complex equipment. And the uh, African-American community fought against that. After a lawsuit was threatened, the government relented and actually supported the civilian pilot training program at seven of the HBCUs. Some of them still have their programs going on today. They're teaching African-Americans how to fly. For every 10 men that were taught, one female had to be taught also. The idea was uh, if uh, men were off fighting the war, the ladies would ferry the aircraft from factory to training base to port where it would be shipped overseas. From those ladies, the WASP were created, women air service pilots. But they refused to let African-American women join their corps. So none of the African-American women were able to uh, pursue that. We had a few that went to Tuskegee and ended up being instructors there. But that taught a lot of the airmen how to fly. So when the war started and the airmen were, uh, you know, formed in March of 1941 and later in July the pilot training started, those guys pretty much knew how to fly already. So already in the 30s, before the Tuskegee Airmen came to be under the civilian pilot training program, already facing hurdles. Originally, African-Americans weren't allowed to participate. Finally, they were, although, again, the women were never allowed, African-American women never allowed to serve in the WASPs. Now they get to Tuskegee, uh, 1941, and starts all over again. Um, it does. Yeah. In the beginning, I think for all of the uh, Army, Air Corps, you had to be educated, two years of college. They quickly dropped that. But the airmen suffered racism from their commanders. And it wasn't until Noel Parrish uh, took over c commander of the, um, the base there at Tuskegee that they started to get some fair treatment. Fortunately, the training was the same. They didn't create a separate training manual for the African-American airmen. So they got the same training, all the same lessons, but when they wanted to go to the officers club, once they got their wings and became officers, they were denied, and mainly by the base commander. So this was an individual who said uh, segregation is going to be uh, appropriate at this base, whereas the Army regulations said, if you're an officer, you go to the officers club. When they would go into town, <coughs> people would not recognize, you know, their military uniform. You know how we treat uh, airmen or soldiers today? We, we let them board the airplane first. We serve them free, uh, sometimes in restaurants. Airmen got none of those um, perks that the um, Caucasian soldiers got. So they also had to struggle with being a student when sometimes their instructor had fewer flying hours than they did. So they were constantly being trained by guys who were trying to increase their rank 
you know, if I can be an instructor for six months, then I can go to this rank and this pay. And the poor African-Americans had to suffer and endure that training. Those are just some of the things they had to endure. Uh, Equipment-wise, there's a rumor they got the airplanes that the Flying Tigers were flying in China before World War II, and that's not true. They got the same kind of airplanes, but not those actual airplanes. It would actually cost too much to bring them back to the States from China. But they started out uh, with the training aircraft. So the primary trainer was the PT-17, which is a, today we, we call a Stearman. The next aircraft was a basic trainer called a BT-13. The, the Volte Vibrator. The Vibrator was its nickname. Then the advanced trainer was the AT-6, or the Texan. And we have um, three of those aircraft here in the hangar. We're about to purchase a BT-13. We don't know that it has Tuskegee history. That may be the first one that'll be um, model and type, but not actual Tuskegee airplane. Can I interrupt just long enough to say, too, sure. for listeners, uh, the three planes that are here is very, very cool. Before we recorded, you were kind enough to take me out on the tour of the facilities here. Uh, that's not just two Stearmans and a Texan generically. I mean, those are two Stearman and Texan that were in Tuskegee, used by the pilots down there. I mean, it is the real history and it's it's a goosebump moment to go out there and just put your hands on it and to know uh, to know that it was I mean this is not just the model of plane this is the plane that's right it's a goosebump moment when you try to fly them because <laughs> you don't want to wreck one of their airplanes <laughs> and you're awed at I actually get the privilege of doing this yeah I bet. Uh, one other, and I, I think I'm interrupting you because you're. This is one of the things that I really personally wanted to hear most about is the chronology of the planes they used because that stuff just fascinates me. But before we move on, one other very significant intersection of history, I think, as they faced that discrimination and were denied from the officers club uh it was the beginning of another very noteworthy career one of the first attorneys to come in and defend them was thurgood marshall thurgood marshall That's yeah right. uh, which really was one of the mo first important cases of his career uh, yes and the 477th bomber um, group was a group of airmen some were too big to fly fighters and some, it was just too many to um, join the 332nd. Uh, one of the airmen said there were actually enough African-American pilots to start another fighter group. You could have had the 332nd and the 333rd, but the uh, military didn't want it. So they started the 477th uh, Bomber Squadron, and their commanders almost vowed these guys are never going to see combat. One of the sticky points was the officers club. And the airmen said, we're not going to stand for this. Coleman Young, the first African-American mayor of the city of Detroit, organized a protest. This was a peaceful protest to enter the officers club two by two instead of going as a gang 
we're going to go two by two every 15 minutes or so. Two of us will go and we'll enter. We'll sit down and we'll order um, a drink. After the first night, the base commander put up an order saying, do you understand you're not supposed to go to the officer's club and that you won't go and sign this order? And they refused. Uh, some actually did sign, but then later came and scratched their name out. The following evenings, as they entered the club, they were put under arrest, house arrest. And the commander thought, since they disobeyed my order during wartime, I can put them before a firing squad. And that was a, a rule in the army. During war, you disobey an order, you can be uh, put up for a firing squad. So the court-martial, Thurgood Marshall, came in, defended them, and only two were convicted. They were convicted felons until President Clinton um, expunged their records in the mid-90s. One was still alive, Roger Terry. And he pretty much was uh, so happy he came to tears at the final recognition that he was not in the wrong. He was not a convicted felon. It didn't ruin his life either. He, he became a lawyer. That's something you can do. You don't need anyone to employ you for that. He was quite successful. So that's the story of the 477th. And one of many <coughs> intersections between the story of the airmen and other very important historical figures. That's correct. So the black press talked about a double victory. The victory against the enemy, the Germans and the Japanese, and the victory against racism here at home. The 477th fought the, uh, the fight of racism, and they won. Some say that was the precursor to the civil rights movement. The way in which the protest was done, how it was defended in court, and the bravery of the men who actually participated in the protest. And not... You know, the the civil rights movement that followed is well documented. This is not. That's correct. You know, most Americans are familiar with the seminal events and moments of what we know as the civil rights movement, but not this story. The reason for that is the press was not here on the base. Now, once... The word got out, the press attempted to get on base. We have a photo where one of the press actually snuck a camera in a shoebox to get a picture of the men being lined up, putting on transport aircraft so they could be flown to Godman Field, Kentucky, where they were behind barbed wire while German prisoners of war were walking around free. You could, in America, during World War II, as a... Uh, African-American go to the movie theater and be relegated to sit in the balcony where a German prisoner of war, an enemy of our country, was able to sit wherever he wanted in that theater. Uh, go to any restaurant and eat. Um, the German prisoners of war had it pretty, uh, pretty easy here in the United States. Yeah. Well, you know, I wanted to talk about that portion of it, but I did pull you back from something I want to come back to because uh, it's one of my favorite parts. Uh, I just love aviation history and the different aircraft, particularly through the World War II era. So we had 
just, I think I derailed you when we were done talking about the trainer planes. What about the actual planes they flew in combat? Combat, so the first um, was the P-40 Warhawk. Now, you also had the P-39 Air Cobra. That was flown largely in training and here in Michigan. So you would leave Tuskegee, come to Selfridge Field. The area around Michigan simulated the coast of uh, France, which is what we were going to be attacking soon. So they did training here in the P-39. We didn't really fight the P-39 in combat that much, but there, were, there was a significant crash of a P-39 here in Michigan in um, April of 43. That aircraft uh, is being recovered by the museum. Um, we'll go down and get more pieces this year. This, this has been a three-year project. And there is a short dive window in the Great Lakes. This uh, summer we hope to bring up the wing and the engine to the aircraft. After the P-40, and the P-40 was used mainly in North Africa and Southern Italy, Sicily, they went to the P-47, Thunderbolt. And only for about three months. Then came the P-51 Mustang. And that's when uh, escort duty really kicked off and got into high gear. About the same time, Benjamin o. Davis was called back to the States there was a uh, Air Force or Air Corps general who wanted to shut down the 332nd Fighter Group. And he started to talk about their record and how poor it was. And Bill Davis pulled out the actual combat record, and it matched. There was no significant difference between this group of African-American uh, pilots and any other group in the European theater. So the Pentagon said, continue on. Uh, Davis was asked, can your guys escort the bombers? And he said, sure. And he went to the airmen and said, look, we're going to have escort duty. They're going to be looking at us. I've just come from Washington. So here are the rules. You will not leave the bombers. If you do, you will be court-martialed. We won't be out going out seeking glory like the other units were. That's one of the reasons they had such a good record, because they were ordered to stay with the bombers. <coughs> Another uh, reason they were more effective, they could put up more airplanes. The 99th was the first squadron to go over, and they fought in North Africa. They had to be attached to a Caucasian squ uh, group, fighter group. And that was a, a good relationship. The fighter group uh, took them in. Taught them combat tactics, things you just don't learn training here in the States. But when the 332nd was up to full strength and came over to Italy, they immediately took the 99th and joined them to the 332nd. Now you had four squadrons, 16 airplanes each, so the airmen could put up more aircraft to help escort the bombers. And the guys had something to prove. We're just as good as anyone else. So their record of escorting bombers to target and back was stellar because of those reasons. 
better than similar groups of escort P-51 squadrons at similar theaters. That's correct. And another reason, due to the racism, there was a NOVA um, program about an airman who they found his remains. They found his crash, found his remains, and his daughter said that her dad was forced to fly 70 missions while the Caucasian were only uh, required to fly 50. And that wasn't um, something due to racism. That was a request from B.O. Davis. The racism came back here at home. Here at home, the only place an African-American could go learn to fly was at Tuskegee. Tuskegee had a set capacity. You couldn't get but so many pilots into the program at one time. So replacements were hard to come by. And B.O. Davis asked, could his guy fly 70 missions instead of uh, 50? So they had more flight experience, uh, you know, later in the war. It made them better pilots. So they fought through North Africa, Sicily, Italy, and their, one of their last missions was escorting bombers to Germany. They were supposed to uh, rendezvous with another fighter group, and that fighter group would take over escort into Berlin. But the group didn't show up. We don't know what happened if they got lost or missed their timing, but the airmen, realizing they're going to run low on fuel, continued to escort the bombers all the way to Berlin. That was the longest mission of the war in the European theater. In the Pacific, they had much longer missions. So that's just some of the story of them escorting bombers. Yeah. And again, if you look back historically, so the bomber escorts, you know, their true metric was not how many fighter planes of the enemy did they down. It's how many bombers of ours did they protect? How many planes came back from that Michigan? From that mission, and their record in that regard really is the gold standard. Um, their metrics on how many bombers survived and returned were the best of any of the fighter squadrons in the war. That's right. Yeah. And you'll never get that again. One, because you'll never put up that many airplanes, you know, in, in the sky. Well, some of the accommodations, uh, and if any of this is wrong, Dr. Smith, jump in and correct me because this is all from Wikipedia, which is not always reliable, but the numbers are staggering. Um, three distinguished unit citations, 96 distinguished flying crosses, 14 bronze stars, 744 air medals, you know, multiple purple hearts. It's just a... It's an astounding uh, transcript. You know, the, the list of accomplishments is, is awesome. And, and you're right. Uh, Wikipedia doesn't have it all correct. Uh, that's okay. You get the point. Uh, we will, if not already on our website, have the uh, correct awards. Uh, there were airmen who actually had three kills in one mission. You know, and that was a significant um, feat to do. Uh, two I can think of is uh, one lucky Lester who actually ran into a flight of Germans. He shot down one, shot down the second, and then the third and fourth realized what was going on. The fourth got away, but the third tried to do uh, a split S and actually crashed into the mountainside. 
Harry Stewart was on a um, uh, Seek and Destroy. Uh, they may not have used that term during World War II, but after escorting the bombers, you were able to go down low and shoot up targets of opportunity. The Germans kind of caught on to that and lured them uh, with a flight while a attacking force was above. And this attacking force attacked uh, seven of the airmen that day. I think um, two were shot down, killed, one bailed, a third bailed, um, Walter Manning. He was later lynched by a mob in the town. But Harry Stewart shot down two and was being chased by a third. He could see the uh, tracers going by his airplane. And he put the airplane into a tight turn and dive. The German tried to follow, trying to pull lead. You had to actually get your nose in front of his nose. You have to shoot where the airplane will be, not where, where, it, where it is. In doing that, the German stalled and crashed into the ground. That's how Harry got his third kill. Three in a day. Three in a day. So we have uh, pictures and drawings or paintings of Harry back. Uh, they're pulling him out of his airplane. He's got three fingers up, saying that he got three kills. Harry Stewart later participated in the first uh, gunnery meet that the Air Force had after uh, World War II, 1949, where the 332nd actually won that competition. So it was perfect segue my next question i want a, a couple more things about the tuskegee airmen themselves and then i want to make sure we devote time to to the museum and your mission your education too but the two things i wanted to touch on before i moved on one were or was the post-war competition you described it to me dr smith is really a precursor to a top gun almost yes uh for anybody that might not have gotten the accurate information from World War II about the accomplishments and the performance of the Tuskegee Airmen. They come back and have a civilian competition in, you said, 1949? It wasn't civilian. This or, was or, I'm sorry, civilians, <laughs> Porto was peacetime. The peacetime, yeah, yes. But, but military yes. uh, competition, which they, I'll let you tell the story of, of their dominance basically there. Yes, the Air Force, the brand new Air Force, thought, well, our pilots are getting dull, no enemy to shoot at. This is 1949, um, we got, what, four years after the war. And they invited 12 squadrons that were in the continental U.S. to come to Las Vegas for a competition. We're going to shoot targets at 20,000 feet, 10,000 feet, then we're going to go down to the ground, we're going to strafe targets, we're going to shoot rockets at targets, we're going to uh, bomb targets and skip bomb targets. Over five days, it was not just a competition between the pilots, but the mechanics also. The uh, rule was, if your airplane breaks down, you can't go get another one. You're just out of that competition, and you lose all the points uh, possible for that. That rule was not followed at the end of the competition. But the group, 332nd, one, they had the highest score. They won the competition. The individual trophy went to uh, an airman who was able to take his uh, malfunctioning airplane and go get another one. If he had not been allowed to do that, then Alva Temple would have been the highest scorer at that competition. 
But the 332nd as a group won the uh, Top Gun Trophy at the 1949 Gunnery Meet held in Las Vegas. Now, before the war, they were not intelligent enough, not brave enough, didn't have the dexterity and the intelligence to handle this complex equipment. After the war, they were the best. And during the war, for that matter. And, and during the war. Yeah. Now, you probably can't get one of them to say that. In fact, they've told me, don't say that. But I have to say, if you've won the competition with all the squadrons in the continental United States, you are the best. Yeah. And the stories are out there from bomber groups towards the end of World War II, even some of the ones that initially were resistant to having the Tuskegee Airmen as their escort. By the end of the campaign, they were requesting them. Yes. And I've seen many a crew come to tears when you mention the Tuskegee Airmen. I was in Seattle, Washington, visiting a friend, parked behind a gentleman who had 15th Air Force an emblem in his window. He got out of the car, I got out of the car, and I asked him, do you know about the Tuskegee Airmen? He was like, yes. And he came to tears telling me how he would not be here, he would not have grandkids if it weren't for those men. So a lot of people thankful for what they did in World War II. That's powerful. And, and even more powerful in some ways when it's somebody you just run into circumstantially yes. day to day. Which, by the way, uh, we could do a whole other podcast on this, but... Your entire life is a series of unbelievable encounters like that, uh, intersections with history. Yes. Well, let's talk, um, uh, you know, I don't want to cut short anything else that we want to talk about the airmen, but I also do want to leave a lot of time for the museum and the ongoing mission. But let's at least talk about the continuing careers of some of these Tuskegee airmen after they get out, because frankly, it's it's almost as impactful and as amazing as their time in the service. You mentioned Coleman Young already. Yes. Um, first African-American mayor of Detroit. Yes. Was a veteran of the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, you've mentioned Benjamin O. Davis many times already. He was the leader of the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, first African-American general in the United States Air Force, eventually attained the rank of four-star general. Uh, this is something I did not know. So I've always been very interested in the Tuskegee Airmen, so I knew about General Davis, but I did not know he was the first Air Force general, but his father was the first African-American general in the Army. Yes. That's incredible. It is. Just incredible. Uh, Marion Rogers went on to work at NORAD and was a program developer for Apollo 13. Uh, Robert Williams was the first African-American judge to serve on an appellate court in Pennsylvania. I mean, the, the list just goes on and on. And I want to leave you some time to add other names to that if you want to. But, you know, the global point is the amazing things that happened uh, or that were done by the Tuskegee Airmen when they were in the service was not the end of the story. It was really the beginning. That's correct. Uh, the Airmen, some of them stayed in the service. And two come to mind, Chappie James, Daniel Chappie James. Benjamin o. Davis told him, you'll never be a general. And he actually became a four-star before Benjamin o. Davis did. Chappie James was in charge of SAC at one time, Str Strategic Air Command. And he was a, um, a, a lightning rod, if you will. I was having dinner with Scott Crossfield, one of America's 
test pilots. And we mentioned the name Chappie James, and Scott Crossfield got kind of upset. Well, why? Well, he was just pushing the envelope. He was doing things before it was time to do things. And we asked, well, what did he do? Chappie James apparently flew into an Air Force base, went to the um, swimming pool. You know, he got his swimming trunks, and he did a cannonball in the swimming pool. Now, this was at the time when African-Americans and Caucasians could not swim together. You had separate pools. He jumped in this pool. Everyone got out. They drained the pool, disinfected it before they refilled it again. And that was upsetting to Scott Crossfield. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Chappie James for, for doing that. Uh, and for being such a, a, a leader, achieving the rank of four-star general, becoming in charge of Strategic Air Command. This is the air command that was in the air 24 hours a day, just in case the Russians did something crazy like they're doing now. And he was in charge of and Strategic charge. Air Command. I mean, that is about as impactful <coughs> a position as you can get in That's the Air right. Force. That's right. He was direct line to the president. The next one is Lucius Theus. What a gentleman he was. Uh, treated his wife like she was the only woman on earth. He started as a buck private in the Army Air Corps and ended up as a two-star general and eventually being in charge of all the finances for the United States Air Force. So just powerful, intelligent men yeah. who did good things for the country after World War II. Yeah, the, the end of their time in service in World War II, it wasn't the end, it was just the beginning. Just the beginning. Which really is the perfect segue into the museum itself. And, and I think we mentioned this earlier, but for listeners, we're recording at one of the facilities for the Tuskegee Airmen Museum in Detroit, Michigan. But this is the, the part of the story that actually drew us up here that we wanted to help tell. All the accomplishments of the Tuskegee Airmen set the foundation upon which this stands, but we want to talk about what you're doing today and their legacy. So the Tuskegee Airmen National Historical Museum here in Detroit, start with the basics. Can you tell us when it was founded and how um, this site was selected? And uh, we'll get into the detailed programs you're doing today in a minute, but the general mission and, and goals of the program when it began. Sure. The doors opened to the museum in 1987. So a little before that, they had the idea that we need to tell the story of the Tuskegee Airmen. And it was uh, airmen like Wardell Polk, Coleman Young, Lucius Theus, uh, William Thompson. He, he liked to be referred to as his middle name, Horton uh, Thompson, and, and a few others, Alexander Jefferson. They got together and started to plan a museum. They wanted to take it. Uh, or purchase land in Tuskegee, but didn't have the funds to do that at the time. Coleman Young said, we can take a building at historic Fort Wayne, which was kind of going into disrepair. We can rehab one of those buildings and put up a display. They called uh, for artifacts from the airmen, and airmen all over the country sent artifacts to uh, the museum here in Detroit. The Detroit Historical Society helped us curate the exhibits for that museum. 
And that was in place until uh, 2020 when we opened up a facility at the Charles H. Wright Museum. So our museum is now inside the Charles H. Wright Museum. It's a, a brand new exhibit using the artifacts from the old museum. We're still collecting artifacts and we have artifacts we have never put on display that are housed at the old museum. So that museum is building is used for storage and for, for research. Here at the airport, in 2002, when I was president of Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated, the United States Air Force Academy came to us with uh, the idea that you guys are doing a good thing with your programs. We have one of your students here as a stellar cadet. We want to help you. We have these motor gliders we'd like to give you. I had to convince the airmen who were in their 70s, early 80s, that we could safely take in those flying aircraft, teach students how to fly, and not be sued uh, when there was an accident. Uh, I finally convinced them, and this was uh, at the end of a long history of me doing youth programs and raising the money for these programs. So they trusted me to bring these airplane airplanes in, find pilots to fly them. At the time, I didn't have a glider license. We, we did that and we started teaching young people how to fly. We used them in air shows. We're the only formation glider team in the world. Because nobody flies gliders in formation, but the museum does. Uh, if I can interrupt for one second too. So one of the many anecdotes, this is not specific to the museum, but just to you. And again, we could do a, a pretty long podcast just on your life and the intersections with history you've had, but you got to fly with the Thunderbirds. Speaking of rare teams that fly in formation, uh, segue or sidebar doesn't really relate to the podcast, but uh, cool enough to be worth a mention all the same. Yes, that was a highlight of one of the highlights in my life. I can only imagine. But anyway, so you have the only glider formation team here, and that all started because one of the students you worked with went to the Air Force Academy and did so well. Yes. They reached out to you to see if you'd have interest in it. And, and I have to give credit to the, um, the Dodo chapter in Chicago. That student came from one of their aviation programs. Well, that may be, again, yet another good segue into the fact that it was one of your students that you graduated out of here, and I call them students. This is, let's maybe move now to what I think is the real essence of this, and that is what you all have done here at the museum, and, and I don't want to put the words in your mouth, so you know, tell us in, in your own words, but to me it seems like you've taken the legacy and the work of the Tuskegee Airmen, and you could have sat here and just made sure that the history survived and mm -hmm. told the story, which I think by itself would have warranted the resources and the effort to do. But instead, you folks are doing both that, but also taking it forward to the next generation of folks and getting them excited, not just about the specific legacy of the Tuskegee Airmen, which is part of it, but science itself, flight, aviation, avionics, career opportunities, um, so many programs that you all put on here 
that gives so many kids and young adults an opportunity to have experiences in this field that normally just aren't available to any of us as, as young kids. Uh, and the student that went on to the Air Force Academy, obviously that returned huge rewards out of the gate. But every day you've got folks involved in these programs. And I don't know where to begin, if I should list them or if you just want to go through them, but you've got the Aviation Career Education Academy, the Tuskegee Airmen Flight Academy, Aviation Career Week, Wild Blue Wonders, Young Eagles Rally, Rocket Club, Drone Club. I mean, it's just an amazing palette of options for these young people uh, that are here in tandem with that legacy of the Tuskegee Airmen. I will let you take it from there. Tell us how that came about and what that looks like day to day and the opportunities it provides for these young folks. So let's go back to the end of World War II and you have all these combat experience pilots, uh, some who are not combat experience are flying twin engine aircraft. You have uh, navigators. These are, are men who are certificated to navigate uh, for the United States military. Uh, bombardiers, you have to be certificated to drop bombs on the enemy. So the war is over and you're wondering, what am I going to do with my life? Well, let's go to Pan Am and ask if I can fly for them. Harry Stewart went to Pan Am and TWA. Now here's a man who participated in the uh, Top Gun, the first Top Gun, his uh, squadron or group one. So he's one of the best pilots in the United States Air Force. And he goes to Pan Am and TWA, and they tell him, you can't fly for us because you're black. Imagine what the uh, passengers would think if they saw a black man go to the cockpit to fly the airplane. Uh, so we, we cannot hire you. And this happened with a number of airmen. Only one was able to fly for an airline, um, and that was Robert Ashby. He, he passed uh, a few years ago. Most of them were denied. So they are sitting at home trying to figure out, what can I do? We can't let all this experience die. Richard Macon, um, Alexander Jefferson, and a few others started a civil, uh, civil air patrol squadron. And they taught young people how to fly. Jim Edwards was a recipient of that instruction and he's one of our first African-American airline pilots. He wasn't the first, but just one of the first. And he had to go through a lawsuit. He was actually in the military. After the military, tried to fly off the airlines and again was denied. And this is in the 60s. So the airmen recognized we have to teach more African-Americans how to fly. That was the, the first uh, uh, thing they were trying to do. And they created the Aviation Career Week. So they're trying to encourage people to go into being pilots, but they also realize they couldn't have done what they did without the mechanics and the logistics people to make sure they had the, the right bullets, the right gas. And the airlines have all of these careers. So they invited the airlines to come to Detroit and they would bring in school kids to talk to the airlines. Now when I joined, I saw it as the kids would come in, they'd walk around the gym, they might talk to someone from the airlines, and then they would leave. And that's when I 
started thinking, and I changed that program from a gymnasium to Cobo Hall. And it cost money. I was um, fortunate enough to raise that money. But the Aviation Career Week now turned into 40-minute sessions where you would talk to a room full of air traffic controllers. You'd have a tower controller, a Tracon controller, and they would tell you about their career. Then you'd go to another room and talk to a group of pilots, another room and talk to flight attendants. And we were able to get, you know, 4,000 kids through that program. As time went on, the airmen, as well as myself, said, this is not enough. We've got to start teaching kids actually how to fly. And we started the um, Tuskegee Airmen Flight Academy. We didn't have any airplanes, and we uh, could only teach the student ground school and then send them to a flight school. That would change with the um, acquisition of the gliders. Aviation Career Academy is a program started by the FAA. It, it's designed to give the student a broad understanding of all the careers in aviation. We've been doing that for 30 years here in Detroit, actually maybe 32. A lot of our students uh, are now flying for the airlines. These young men and ladies you know, joined our program. We paid for their pilot license, sent them off to college, at times gave them scholarships so they could get um, check rides, and they're now flying for the major airlines. So we have about seven or eight doing that today. It's not enough, but it's more than zero. Then we have Wild Blue Wonders. That was started by the EAA, the Experimental Aircraft Association. By the time we joined, they were shutting it down. We asked for all the books and all the uh, kits, and we started doing Wild Blue Wonders in middle schools. We're trying to get those students to choose careers in aviation. Some of them have. Others have just been inspired to be excellent students. And about 25 years ago, we started Young Eagle Rallies, again through the Experimental Aircraft Association. That's how we attract students to our programs. We give them a free airplane ride and then tell them about all the things we're doing. A donor came to us and said, you know, I really like you to start a rocket club and you need to work with a high school a community college, and a university, and then I want you to put a rocket into space. And here is some money to do it with. So we started a rocket club, and boy did I discover or rediscover a love from my childhood building rockets. So we have a few students who one has already gotten her high power rocket license, another is on the way, and this summer we're really going to get into rocketry. How cool is that? They've already got licenses for that. Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's, um, it's a lot of fun to see that rocket go. Detroit uh, City has a program where they employ high school students in the summer. It's called Grow Detroit Youth Talent. And they have contracted with uh, another organization who contracted us to teach drone class. And that got us into drones. 
the Part 107 exam is a lot like the uh, pilot exam. It's not as uh, intensive, but you, you learn a lot of things that pilots learn in order to fly a drone. So we're able to teach that here at the museum. Uh, we went and invested in drones, and now we're teaching adults as well as youth how to fly drones. One thing that we haven't got off the ground yet is the AMP maintenance familiarization. <coughs> the airlines need, you know, altogether, we're talking 30,000 pilots in the next 10 years. And it's the same for mechanics. So mechanics are retiring and they need to be replaced. The kids in the, in the city of Detroit, we call them underrepresented in the fields of aviation and aerospace science. And they are really uninformed about simple things like what's a box-in wrench, what's an open-end wrench. Giving them all that at once, it's kind of forcing them to drink from a fire hose. The aviation maintenance familiarization is designed to give them that familiarity with wrenches, with um, you know, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey, what, what's compression, what's timing. We can teach them all these basics. And then we're partnering with uh, MIAT, is a, a school that actually gives you a certification to be an airplane mechanic. They'll go to that school with some hours toward their certificate and an understanding of, of what it's all about. And hopefully we'll get some success there. If they complete the, the course, we'll help defray some of their loan if they have to take a loan. So all of these things are, are awesome on a lot of different levels. I mean, some of these programs get folks, you know, these young folks, actual certifications and licenses, which is obviously cool. Uh, all of this is great job training. I mean, these skills are going to be helpful everywhere they go. Uh, but beyond, you know, jobs and licenses, just anything that will make a young person passionate about science and mathematics and engineering and all of those things is a huge win. And the programs you put together here pretty much do all of those, uh, accomplish all three of those things at the same time. They do. And because I'm a college professor, you can't, you know, as a young person, talk to me long without getting into something science. Yeah. I will... Um help you understand the concepts of physics. Even if you're 10 years old, I'm going to explain to you Pythagorean's theorem and all three of Newton's, you know, laws of gravity and motion. So we have fun here. And it's all, how you I, I wouldn't call it nerdy fun because I'm a cool guy. You know? <laughs> I, I have fun. Yeah. And I do it without drugs and alcohol. I, I do it with an understanding that I've got to give back to my community. And I do it with the understanding that if I help someone, it's going to make the world a better place. Yeah. Well, I think all of these programs accomplish that. <clears throat> and if you come and fly with us and get enough hours, we'll actually put you in an air show. Wow. So Talmadge Turner, I have his uh, picture here. He just got his... Uh, pilot license in an airplane and he's uh well you say just uh, listeners can't see it, but i'm looking at the photo uh we're recording what's the date today march 22nd 
This photo is from March 13, and now I'm looking at one from March 7. So, yeah, hot off the press. So to open up the air show, these gentlemen will fly. One will fly the glider. Another will fly an airplane through the box. No way. The air show At box. the air show. At the air show. Not just an exercise, that's that's right. but it's part of the air show. It's part of the air show. They're going to fly straight and level. Oh. They're not going to do anything. How cool is that? And then the rest of us will come in and actually do the air show. So the Tuskegee Airmen Museum does an air show for the city of Detroit during River Days. That'll be June 24, 5, and 6 of 2022. Very cool. That is awesome. Well, if that isn't a reward uh, for all the time they put in, I don't know what is. Getting to actually take a flight path through the air show, that's pretty cool. That's that's something good to put in your logbook. No doubt. Well, speaking of cool, um, the last thing, you know, I've really wanted to focus on the good that the programs here are doing and all the opportunities, job trading, get folks engaged in STEM, all of that. But I do want to talk about the the cool factor, or uh, actually want you to talk about the cool factor, the exhibits you have here. So the three planes that you have that they used as, as trainers, which you were gracious enough to take me out and look at before the podcast. I mean, that is the that is the apex of cool to actually put your hand on those. But you mentioned the fact that even with the move um, to the larger museum space you're in now, that you still have so many exhibits that you can't exhibit them all and have some that, in fact, you've never even been able to show. Tell us about some of the other cool stuff. Like, what are the things that make people have the same reaction I did when you showed me the planes, just the, the jaw drop and the wow? I think the most wow we have now is the P-39 we're pulling up from Lake Huron. This is uh, Frank Moody was the pilot, and when he crashed, he actually left the airplane. He was still strapped in his seat. They found him two weeks later. So we know the wreck site is not a grave site. Pulling that airplane up and bringing it to the museum to display is going to take some room. We will probably never make that airplane fly again, but it'll just be there as a reminder of the sacrifice airmen made, Tuskegee airmen made during training. A lot of airmen perish during training here in the United States. Uh, so this will be a memorial to those guys because he's not the only one uh, who crashed and died. We know of about four other wrecks. If we find the P-40 that Sadat Singh was flying, we believe it's in deep enough water to bring it up and actually make it fly again. Oh, wow. So that's uh, one exciting thing. We also want to build a facility here at the airport that will house these aircraft that we bring up. We're kind of bursting at the seams, and we need more room. Well, Dr. Smith, that's actually a great segue to our exit here. Um, I know we've already run over the time that we had scheduled for today's podcast, but you mentioned bursting at the seams and needing more space. I did want to close with this. Um, for our listeners, you can go to tuskegeemuseum.org. Two things there. One, you can get all kinds of cool information about um, the airmen and the museum itself and all the programs that Dr. Smith just went through. But also on the top right in a bright red box, uh, there's a donate tab. 
And if you're so inclined, uh, you can go there and make a contribution, which goes to help all of the programs Dr. Smith just talked about. And also uh, cool stuff like storing all of these artifacts and, and the continuing efforts they're making to pull these planes up um, that are, that are you know, been sitting down there for, for decades. And it takes a lot of resources to, to pull those back up and repurpose them and put them on display again. So, uh, Dr. Smith, you've been very gracious with your time. And thank you for sharing this important story. And BHL listeners, we appreciate you tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this and uh, look forward to talking with you on the next episode of the BHL podcast.